Hi everyone, Pamela Larg here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. It's the same reaction that powers the sun and the stars. Fusion energy, once considered the stuff of dreams, is certainly making leaps and bounds towards becoming a tangible part of our net zero energy system. With fusion ignition being achieved last year by the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the USA, we have a reason to get excited about the possibilities of tapping into this limitless source of clean power. So we ask, has fusion's time come? And when can we expect the first commercially viable fusion energy? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Christopher Maori, CEO of Type 1 Energy and Chair of the Fusion Industry Association. Chris delves into the technologies making waves in the sector and looks at what policy challenges need to be overcome to make this dream a reality. I'm Pamela Larg, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you about, frankly, one of the most exciting topics as far as I'm concerned. I've been wanting to talk about fusion energy for some time, so (laughs) I'm very pleased that we could just spend this time together. And, you know, I think for me what's really incredible is fusion energy used to be considered almost like a race, but a race where you couldn't see the finish line. And that is really changing. Chris, my first question is, would you agree? Are we starting to see the finish line when it comes to fusion energy? First of all, I appreciate the opportunity to share what is an incredibly important story. And it is a story that ultimately is critical to this energy transition that we're in the middle of. So the good news here is that in fact, Uh, We have crossed the threshold from doing a bit of searching in the dark, one could say, a very originally very empirical science that has really relied on the advent of modern high-performance computing to grow up on the analytical side. But the advances over the past, particularly the past decade, very exciting advances on the science side have really allowed the industry and society to shift its view from basically proving that society can recreate the conditions inside a star, which is really what fusion energy is all about, to actually focusing on its application and its promise, which is really around the ultimate clean tech that exists. Frankly, if you look at it from a broad perspective in the universe, it is really, fusion energy is really the most powerful form uh, of energy that exists. It it powers every star in the universe. And the quest to recreate uh, a piece of the sun on earth and harness that directly to create clean energy is really what this is all about. It really is enough to make one's heart skip a beat. But before we get into the the discussion about the, the exact technologies, Chris, 
for our listeners, tell us a bit about yourself. You are CEO of Type 1 Energy. You're chair of the Fusion Industry Association. Tell us a little bit about your role in the sector. So I perhaps come to this sector in a bit of an unusual and circuitous route. My journey has really been through the global energy industry throughout my career with touch points around every technology that's really used these days from traditional fossil fueled energies like oil and gas and, and coal to renewables, hydropower, solar thermal, and a lot of time actually in traditional nuclear power. And so I've had an opportunity to see the benefits and challenges of each of these technologies and how they can contribute to the future of more sustainable future in for energy, but also what ultimately led me to fusion is the recognition, not only by myself, but I think uh, a growing body of experts that there's really no practical way to achieve net zero carbon emissions globally in the energy space without fusion being part of the future energy mix. And that ultimately has what led me to come to fusion, uh, especially when one considers that there is now finally an opportunity to transition fusion from a science to an actual energy source for society. Interesting that you say we can't achieve net zero without fusion. A few years ago, we weren't really covering fusion news very much. And it seemed that there was a, a reticence almost to acknowledge the role or potential role of fusion in our net zero goals or achieving our net zero goals. But that is changing. I want to speak to you about projects or technologies that have your attention. Is, is it a race? And is there a specific technology that's winning this race? It's maybe a race in the sense that the world has established basically a goal to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And if we don't succeed in making fusion energy available to support that transition to net zero in the next decade, it's, I think, pretty hard to see how the world is going to get there. And you're absolutely right. I think for the past 20 years, society has not really been focused on fusion energy for two reasons. One, there has been uh, a huge opportunity to accelerate the deployment of renewables. And renewables are certainly going to play a massive role in the, in the future energy mix, especially in a net zero world. I think it's totally appropriate and correct from that perspective, from a government policy perspective, that we focused on starting to accelerate the deployment of wind and solar primarily. But uh, as we move from the beginning of this game to the middle of the game, one can start to see the contours of limitations where you can't really, and again, in a practical sense, and I think it's important to distinguish from a theoretical or a technical perspective of net zero, what a net zero energy system looks like, from what I would say is a real world perspective. In a technical or theoretical sense, I do not disagree that you cannot, that you can conceive of uh, a world powered purely by intermittent renewable energy, especially when you unconstrain the amount of 
transmission power lines that you can build when you don't constrain the amount of energy storage that you can deploy and when you don't really constrain the cost of energy. But in the real world, I think society has demonstrated over and over again a pretty big reluctance, number one, to sacrifice standard of living, which is effectively what happens when you massively increase the cost of energy. And I think society also has a limit in terms of what they're willing to accept in terms of the impact that energy production has on the rest of their life. So one of the big challenges, of course, with renewables, it's very low density energy and requires massive amount of space. And that starts to impinge upon society in other ways. And, and there's plenty of examples out there around the world where you're starting to see pushback from society where there has been a very significant deployment of renewables. So I think there is clear evidence already that there's limitations here on the amount of intermittent renewable energy that can be deployed, both because of its footprint and the requirements it has on the energy system in total in order to accommodate its intermittencies. But that's not to say that it is not going to be a big part of the future of energy. So I think getting back to the first part of your question, clearly there's been a focus on renewables, I'd say for the past quarter century. And I think that my view is that's totally appropriate. Secondly, fusion wasn't really ready for prime time, arguably until the last half dozen years. And so I think those are the two parts of why you really haven't seen society and the industry really pay a lot of attention to fusion. But both of those things have changed dramatically over, even over the past few years, that change is accelerating. Fascinating, because a lot of people talk about fusion perhaps in a context of dreaming, but actually what you've described to me now is a very pragmatic perspective of how fusion can work within a net zero energy system. And perhaps we are seeing that practical perspective really taking hold. We see now that both governments and private sector alike are really starting to get on board. So we're seeing more funding for the development of technologies, but clearly there's still work to be done. So talk to us, Chris, about in terms of the policy that needs to be developed and perhaps the development of supply chain, how much work do we really need to still do before fusion can really take hold or that the sector can see the development that's required? Great question. That's really the last big hill to climb here. Once you accept the fact that the core technologies are on a glide path to maturity. And that's really what's exciting in terms of what's happening all around us right now. Just several days ago at COP, we had a meeting with representatives across the entire value chain needed to deploy fusion energy. These are leading companies around the world, very large multinational companies from everything from finance to minerals, to supply chain, to engineering and construction, insurance, and really the purpose of these gatherings and these conversations is to ask ourselves collectively as a private sector, what is needed in order to deploy uh, these first fusion power plants and what do we need 
in terms of policy from government. The fundamental thesis behind an organization that I'm part of, which was actually formed by King Charles when he was Prince of Wales, the Sustainable Markets Initiative, is that while governments can stimulate and support the path towards sustainability, ultimately it's up to the private sector to mobilize the capital and actually do what's required. And this Sustainable Markets Initiative, which is formed of a few hundred CEOs of leading companies around the world, is really to demonstrate that, that the private sector can lead here, that the private sector can do what it needs to do from a business perspective and make money to pay its employees and, and shareholders, but also move the needle on sustainability. And so what I have been working with the Sustainable Markets Initiative, the SMI on over the past year is really to form a coalition within the SMI, a task force around this notion that fusion's time has come and we need to move beyond just simply focusing on development of the core technologies, which seems to be in certain cases, reasonably well in hand and start to look at in totality, what is required in order to start deploying this technology to create carbon-free energy. And so that's really a major shift that you have organizations like the SMI engaging in this. And then of course, there are other things that have been going on and that are going on that are really also, I believe, signposts that government is acknowledging that fusion is happening. Uh, one very important development, actually, which began in the UK, is the development and approval of a regulatory framework for fusion energy. One of the value propositions of fusion energy is its inherent safety. And were it to be regulated, for example, like nuclear power, that would be a significant detriment to not only the value proposition, but its ability to be deployed at scale. And so the great news is that the UK government first uh, spent quite a bit of time trying to understand what technology appropriate regulation looks like for fusion. And uh, that was completed a few years ago. And just earlier this year, the US government uh, completed its process and in both cases, acknowledge the fact that fusion is not traditional nuclear power from a safety perspective, does not need to be regulated that way. Although of course it does require regulation. As I always say, it's much more like regulating nuclear medicine in a hospital than a nuclear power plant. Clearly there are things that one needs to do from a safety perspective, as you can imagine, the inside of a star is not a place where people want to be, but it doesn't really have the safety concerns that traditional nuclear power has. I think from a regulatory perspective, these markers, if you will, are incredibly important and send the signal out across to other countries who are starting to think about how to regulate this. On the regulatory side, I think we've seen demonstrable progress in important ways that really help set the table for deploying fusion energy at scale. The other dimension of fusion energy is that in principle, at least some technologies should be cost competitive with coal without subsidies. 
And again, as someone who spent their entire career in the energy sector and spent a lot of time in parts of the world where coal is the primary source of energy, one recognizes that the only way to replace what is two terawatts of installed coal around the world with a carbon-free source of energy is the only way to do that is to actually have a substitute that is effectively economically competitive with coal. And I personally believe that in the end, fusion energy will be cost competitive with coal. And so this then translates into energy policy and how energy policies in different countries and those associated with global agreements on climate change treat fusion as in what is essential here is that fusion is acknowledged and treated as a clean energy technology and enjoys all of the benefits that other clean energy technology have from a policy perspective. We're starting to see that happen, but that's something that government needs to do to support and enable the private sector to lean in and really start adopting this technology. And unfortunately, the wheels of energy policy do turn rather slowly, but hopefully there is momentum that we see being gained within public sector. I would like to ask you, Chris, I realize that you don't have a crystal ball, but if you did and you had to gaze into it, when can we expect to see fusion land? Actually, I do have a crystal ball. It's just not perfectly clear, but... The premise here, this is something that I believe and that my colleagues believe is that there are some fusion technologies that can be ready to initiate the deployment of a first fusion power plant under contract before the end of this decade. So said another way, I think contracts for one or more fusion pilot power plants could be signed before the end of this decade and would be putting fusion electrons on the power grid in the mid-2030s. I think that is very realistic and very durable. One of the sayings that I used to have is that fusion is the vaccine of climate change. And the reason I say that is because it causes one to think about what the world did when it mobilized to develop a vaccine against COVID. And when the quote unquote chips were down and things really needed to get done, government worked together with private industry and academia to do something in one year that normally takes 10 years. And of course that was only possible because a lot of the underlying science around genomics and this type of thing had been really developed in academia and industry and was really ready to be pushed into practice. Really, that's where fusion energy is right now. The underlying technologies needed for us to harness fusion energy and turn it into a practical clean energy technology exists today around the world. And what's really needed now is that same type of social mobilization and acknowledgement that while we need to continue to work on things like renewables, we really absolutely need to mobilize 
those technologies and those elements of the value chain needed to start deploying the first fusion power plants by the middle of the next decade. And if we do that, then I think the end game of net zero is one that can be successful because the technology will have been matured over the course of that decade, the next decade, and really ready to be deployed at scale as we shift into the 2040s, then I think we have a fighting chance. Very positive indeed. Chris, if I can pivot slightly, what is next for Type 1? Or, or should I say, what is your focus at the moment for Type 1? So Type 1 was formed actually with the thought to take advantage of this premise that today there's a special opportunity to combine advances in fundamental fusion technologies with a set of enabling technologies and put together that first prototype power plant without really doing any more large-scale science experiments. So we are very much a partner-rich initiative, a partner-rich company that seeks to work collaboratively within the industry, within the fusion industry itself, with academia, with national laboratories, with the elements of the private sector that have the various elements of these enabling technologies and ultimately with end users. So I can give you a few examples of what we're doing. One of the key enabling technologies is for fusion energy has been the advent of high temperature superconducting materials. So they have lots of very good properties, but one of them is that they can make very powerful practical magnets. And MIT in the US, the university has spent uh, more than a decade developing high temperature superconducting or HTS technology uh, for fusion and actually successfully demonstrated it for application uh, by another private sector company three or four years ago. So we as Type 1 Energy are now working with MIT to translate that technology for application to the specific approach that we're taking here. We are working with industry to apply the recent advances in advanced manufacturing, call it 3D printing, that have really grown up in terms of large format printing capability for aerospace and, and access to space technologies, rocket boosters over the last 10 years, and, and basically reapply those to the manufacturer in a much more cost-efficient and rapid way, the components of a fusion power plant. And finally, we're also combining modern supercomputing capabilities. As I'm sure you're aware, computational capabilities continue to accelerate. Now we have AI, uh, but all of these things allow one to actually design much higher performance uh, fusion processes. And by doing that, you can get more for less, so to speak. It really is a glimpse into the future. And it is indeed very exciting. When you were young, did you think that you'd always be working in the power sector or specifically in fusion? Was this a dream of yours at all? That's a great question. So when I was young, I wanted to be an astronomer and I went to university to study astrophysics. And of course, <laughs> being an astronomer causes you to study the stars and how stars work. I came to fusion from the perspective of astrophysics, but then switched my focus to 
more practical pursuits and continue my graduate studies in engineering. And now, decades later, I have the opportunity to bring together these two seemingly disparate academic fields, which actually come together in fusion energy. So there's apparently some justice to all of this, but it is a journey that I certainly could not have foretold when I picked up astrophysics and engineering at the university. Do you have any advice for young minds who are considering a career in engineering or perhaps specifically fusion energy? I do have some advice for those people trying to figure out what they want to spend their life doing. I think one should be ambitious. One should connect one's personal contributions and work to the larger challenges that society has. And uh, the 21st century is filled with challenges, but none bigger than this transition to a sustainable net zero energy industry. And the solutions to bringing fusion energy to this portfolio of solutions, I think requires uh, ambition and creativity and innovation. If that's something that motivates you when you get up in the morning, that you have an ambition to contribute and to participate in this existentially important journey, and you want to help the industry innovate the final solutions and forms of this solution, then there is no better place uh, to be than the fusion sector. And I don't think there's anything that's more important. There's other very important things as well. But for somebody who is interested in energy, this is incredibly important and an incredibly exciting, rapidly moving sector that really needs the best and brightest people that society can bring forward. And as you said, Fusion's time has come. So perhaps now is the time to really get on board. It's been fantastic to speak with you, Chris, really just to learn about how this exciting sector is developing. Do you have any concluding remarks or thoughts you'd like to share? For Fusion to really be deployed at scale and fulfill its promise, we as a sector need to engage all of society in this effort. In the end, a technology has no value if society doesn't want it. And fusion energy is still new. Most people don't understand what it is. And so I think we have an opportunity, no, we have an obligation to communicate, to reach out and embrace communities and have them participate in this journey and help, help the sector understand how this technology can best help society achieve a more sustainable future. And so one of the things that I spend a, quite a bit of time on is actually engagement with community. And I think that this is something that everyone who is a stakeholder in this actually in, in some ways, all of society is a stakeholder in this because again, I don't believe that we are really practically going to achieve net zero without bringing fusion energy into the portfolio of solutions uh, to achieve this net, this energy transitions. I think the final message to me here is that anybody who listens to this podcast should be uh, interested in learning more about fusion energy 
and understanding how their views can be brought to bear and their contributions can be brought to bear in shaping how this technology completes its final journey to the goal of contributing to the transition to net zero energy. Well said. Chris, it's been a pleasure. I'd like to thank you. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Until next time. Visit nlit.world for more episodes and to sign up to be a community member for more exclusive content. Until next time. Thank you.